Welcome to episode 13 of the Criterion Chat. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight's episode focuses on the 1996 breakthrough feature, La Promesse, written and directed by Belgian brothers Luc and Jean-Pierre Dardenne. Informed by long experience in documentary film, La Promesse tells the story of Igor, played by Jeremy Renier. A teenage apprentice mechanic, his real job entails assisting his father, Roger, played by Olivier Gourmet, as he goes about his duties as a twisted landlord, housing and exploiting the constant stream of illegal immigrants pouring into this largely industrial city. When the authorities make a random search, Hamadou, immigrant resident just reunited with his wife and son, falls from a scaffolding and dies. Before his last breath, he asks Igor to promise he will look after his family. Igor agrees. His father, however, is far more interested in looking after himself and quickly conceals the tragedy. Igor's conscience is in turmoil and his loyalty is divided. Hamadou's wife flounders to find her husband and her place in the world garnering Igor's sympathy as the story progresses. This morality tale is an ending that doesn't shock, but manages to retain great power. Shot in a distinctly documentary style, without the aid of musical score, La Promesse established the Dardan brothers as, as champions of naturalism, cinema virite, and the working class. So Nate, I, I thought we'd kind of shift uh, genres with this film. Uh, I think we've, I guess World War II has been a big theme in our, our prior selections, but I, I thought we would kind of look at uh, documentary style uh, narrative film. And I felt the uh, Durdan brothers would be a good place to start. Um, so I, we'll just open it up with a general discussion of the Durdan brothers. Uh, What's your experience with uh, with their films and and uh, just general impressions on their work? I think the only other film of theirs that I've seen is Two Days, One Night. So I don't have a wealth of knowledge on their work. Um, they strike me as being in the mold. I mean, it, there's nothing about them that strikes me as being unique in this way of telling stories. They do it well, but there's no particular voice here that strikes me as being unique in this quasi-documentary style of filmmaking. Um, so, yeah, I don't have any major impressions on them or a major sense of anything other than the generic. They focus on the working class, uh, obviously come from a Belgian background, but nothing in particular to talk about with them. But mostly because I just don't know anything about them. Yeah, I guess I kind of um, started to learn more about them after seeing Two Days, One Night, and that was... Um, the first film of theirs I had seen, and I think uh, it got a lot of attention in the past few years, and of course it's available on Criterion as well, and, and I enjoyed that film quite a bit, and I think there's definitely um, a theme to all their work that's pretty consistent. Uh, before making features, they they made, I think, around or over 60 documentaries, something like that, so they had a lot of experience with, with documentary, and and just really translated those techniques to narrative film. Uh, so pretty, pretty distinctive style uh, for this film. Like you said, it's probably not unique, uh, but you could say that maybe they, you know, uh, repopularized it to a degree, uh, at least in Europe. 
but the fact that there's uh, no score in the film, I think that's pretty consistent throughout their work. And it's kind of interesting because you don't really miss it because I think the style lends itself to not needing a score. And they're so concerned about just showing, uh, showing things to be as realistic as possible that any kind of artifice with a musical score, I think would, would take away from what they're trying to achieve. Um, so the, the, the subject of their work is definitely more about the working class, uh, immigrants in particular seems to be, a uh, a recurring theme, but I don't get the sense that their films are overtly political, which is kind of, kind of an accomplishment in a way. I, I think they're more interested in, in, uh, humanity and just these the, these people uh, as characters more so than uh, you know making a political statement or a social statement even though I mean I think they're concerned with just showing the struggles of these people but uh, not in a way that kind of hits you over the head with a, a, a political message which is for me something that I would welcome um, any any impressions on your part in, in terms of um, those points well, I would agree. It's not that they aren't political, but they're not polemical, I suppose would be maybe the way I would frame it. They certainly, the fact that they're choosing to tell working class tales, that they're making an emphasis on the experience of immigrants, I think by itself is political. That's not to say it's good or bad. It just, it's, it's, they're staking out a certain kind of claim, but they're doing it in the service of trying to flesh out the human so maybe even more than saying a naturalistic sensibility, I might say they bring more of a humanistic perspective to their work. Um, there is something about faux documentary filmmaking to me that is not naturalistic because you don't naturally make movies that way. Uh, so this is maybe just a little philosophical rumination on my point, uh, on my part. But I think it's one of those things where uh, there's an artifice in making a film in a quasi-documentary style not to say artifice is bad, I, I don't think it is, but it is a very purposeful aesthetic, and so there is something contrived in it. And even this movie, you can see, I mean, these shots are very well choreographed. They have, yes, some moments that are a little out of focus, or maybe the frame isn't exactly how it could have been, but nonetheless, you could tell as you're watching, this is not something that's being improvised as they're shooting it. They have mapped it out, they figured out how they're going to shoot it. And all with the intention of trying to evoke a certain kind of uh, cinema verite, right? But I think at the end of the day, it's still very artificial, but at the service of, of trying to articulate something about these characters. Um, by creating this style, it puts the characters at the front of the story and at the front of the, of the cinema, of the, of the shooting, of the sound mixing, all of that, so that it really becomes humanistic. Uh, approach to filmmaking, which is very encouraging, very refreshing, uh, because I would say that what I found with La Promesse, as well as with Two Days and One Night, is that they're not these despairing, uh, nihilistic films, which these kinds of movies tend to become in the last 20, yeah. 30 years. This sort of naturalistic, quasi-documentary uh, approach has lent itself to a certain darkness and cynicism. But there's something about the Dardenne brothers and their work that's actually rather hopeful, which is refreshing. And I, I, I really appreciate that about the work they're doing, or at least of the two movies I've seen. Yeah, it's a good distinction to make. I mean, it's pretty easy for the subject matter just to, 
fall into that very dour, depressing sort of tone. And, and they always seem to kind of look for the bright side or, or look for um, the good in, in the characters uh, that we're seeing. Um, so just kind of an aside, I thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about uh, Cinema Verite just as a style. Uh, would you agree that that's the style at work here? I mean, is that is that the best term for for this this film? It's a good question. Uh, I think it's probably the best you have if you're going to put a label on it. I, I don't know that you could do something better than Cinema Verite. Um, is it really what was being done when that first emerged in the '60s and early '70s? Not quite. Uh, maybe just because there's a self-awareness to it now, and it's a second-generation thing. Uh, but I do think that it, it it fits in that mold, and it continues on what was beginning with things like, say, the Battle of Algiers. So I would argue that, yes, that's probably the best way to approach it. Um, I don't know that I can think of anything that would come close to, to, to capturing the, this kind of filmmaking beyond that. Yeah, I think it's the appropriate term. Um, so I was kind of doing some research on, on just the origins of that style too. And I found kind of interesting Venn diagram online that, that kind of compared, uh, different levels of, you could say quasi documentary or even just documentary in and of itself and, and how each of these styles intersect. So you have, you know, direct cinema, which is defined as just, uh, the author of the film is not a participant. It's just a purely fly-on-the-wall um, depiction, which I would argue is maybe not even possible in filmmaking. I mean, unless you just set up a camera, unless it's like a, a surveillance camera or something, and even even a surveillance camera that is a passive camera has a point of view. Uh, so I always felt the term direct cinema uh, is very problematic because, I mean, how do you define that? Because just by what the camera sees or what it, what the, uh, how the camera is set up is in a way a selection and is in a way, uh, showing you an edited version of events. Uh, so that's a challenging category in and of itself. The next, uh, division from that is, uh, observational cinema. So, uh, here's where editing is really introduced. So the filmmaker has, has to edit the film, but cannot have a commentary or voiceover, uh, so it's it's edited. It's start you know the artifice is starting to take place. It's more refined or more digested than di- direct cinema. Then cinema verite is an offspring of that. So observational cinema can fit into direct cinema, but verite is kind of a crossover uh, into those other two categories. But it's kind of its own thing, right? So the filmmaker um, it's defined here. The filmmaker pr- can participate in front of the camera and make artistic choices. Uh, again, creating an artifice within the film. So I would definitely say this falls into cinema verite. Uh, you, you brought up Battle of Algiers. I mean, that's a classic early example uh, of this style of filmmaking. Uh, you could even go back to something like Rome, Rome Open City, which is more neorealism, certainly. But there are um, kind of quasi-documentary segments in that film that, that are really a precursor to verite. Uh, and then you have films like Z, which were very um, influential on modern-day directors, too, like Steven Soderbergh, uh, and his traffic is is heavily inspired by, by Z. And 
just kind of beyond this discussion, you know, what, what defines cinema verite? I mean, you know, what, what are the qualities uh, that have to be present? I mean, this is kind of similar to our discussion about film noir in our last episode. Um, what do you think has to be present for a film to be called uh, cinema verite? Is it just handheld camera work? Uh, you know, is it the Paul Greengrass approach or is it something more than that? I think it has to be a little bit more than that. And of course, does every shot have to be handheld for something to yeah. count as cinema verite? I haven't watched the Battle of Algiers for quite some time, but as I recall, I think there were some very well-constructed non-handheld shots in it. Uh, maybe I'm remembering it incorrectly, though. Um, but nonetheless, I, so does Saving Private Ryan become cinema verite, for example? I, I can't imagine that you'd think of that as cinema verite, but pretty much the whole thing is handheld. So it strikes me that what you have to have uh, is a certain way in which it makes me seem like, I, as a viewer, that I am watching a documentary, uh, even mm-hmm. though it's not, right? I mean, I, I'm obviously watching a narrative. There's information that's clearly not there. These are clearly characters. Um, so, I, But it has the, the same effect or visceral impact on me as though I watched a documentary, uh, a documentary caught in the field, so to speak. Obviously, realizing for a great many years, documentaries were not filmed that way. They were usually people sitting around tables doing interviews uh, and then maybe spliced with some other footage that was caught out in the field. So I think that's more or less what you have to do. You have to, you have to simulate the documentary and convince me and the audience that I could be seeing a documentary. If, if you presented it, if you looked at this movie and said, hey, you know, this is a documentary, you could plausibly get somebody to go along with that. Obviously, if you really sat down and thought it through, you start to figure out, no, that's not quite right. But at least for a little bit, you could get me as a un- uninformed viewer to think this is a documentary film. I think that's what you need for Cinema Verite. Yeah, it's really kind of hard to define, I think. I mean, what is the line, right? I mean, uh, Saving Private Ryan, you could say that segments of that film are, are Cinema Verite, but you certainly couldn't call the whole thing that because there are very, you know, very clear shifts in tone in, in how different parts of that film are presented. So uh, it, it's something that's hard to define, but I, I think you're kind of getting to the heart of it that it's, it's a simulation of a documentary, I guess is one way to put it. Right. And, and it creates that effect of, of we are watching something that's really happening, even though we consciously know that this is a fictional film. So I guess it's a device to uh, to kind of break that, um, to kind of strip away some of the artificiality that may come with certain kinds of cinema. Uh, so that, that's one way to look at it. And I think the Dardan brothers are, are very interested in finding the purest expression of that because again, just the lack of musical score, uh, very simple opening titles, uh, really no transitions or opticals beyond just straight cuts. So it's a very stripped away, uh, form of storytelling. And I, I think for the subject matter that they're interested in, it makes sense that they would pick that technique. Yeah, no, it, it serves the story well, and this wouldn't be, it would, not that it wouldn't be as effective, it would be just effective differently if you established it in a different style. 
but it's well suited to the characters and the story that they're telling. And it does, I mean, like the musical score, you talked about that. That doesn't really occur to me. I didn't notice as I was watching the film, there was no musical score. It, it was something that as I was thinking back on it and looking uh, up just for preparation for our, our podcast here this evening that, oh yeah, that's right. There wasn't a musical score. So it's it's just it's very naturalistic in the sense of uh, making me believe this is a real story that really did happen. Because guess what? In my life, there isn't some orchestra walking around following me to tell me the mood. Uh, so uh, I think that the, <laughs> they have a nice way of, a sta- of of accomplishing that with this particular style, and it serves these characters: Igor, Roger, uh, Asita. It serves them well. Well. I- uh, let's talk about some of the performances uh, in and of themselves. I, so I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the two leads, Jeremy Renier and Olivier Gourmet, it's very French, uh, I think th- this is their, I want to say their their first leading roles. So they did a great job. I mean, very natural performances. Uh, kind of a unnatural sort of father-son relationship, or we should say an unhealthy father-son relationship uh, at play here. And uh, I think the whole cast did a very good job. But the uh, I do wonder the actors who played the immigrants, how many of them were real immigrants or are these all actors? Uh, I was trying to do some research on that, and I didn't really get to the special features or anything. Maybe that explains some of it a bit more. Uh, but... Uh, I do wonder about the background of some of the other secondary characters. Uh, how did you feel about the performances? You know, I thought they were serviceable. There was nothing about them that really struck me as being profound. Uh, my understanding, Gourmet was a um, theater actor before this. This might have been his first, at least, major part in a film. And René was a very young, I think 14 when they made it, and was his first work. I've seen him in a couple of other movies since then. Brotherhood of the Wolf was one. And it's a horrible movie. I don't even remember him in it. <laughs> and then what was the other one? It's um, I can't remember it now. But I've seen a couple of movies of his that he did later on. And he's never, I guess, made an impression on me. And I'll be honest, I don't know that he made a major impression on me in this movie either. Uh, I think that it's serviceable, but nothing about it struck me as, whoa, this really feels to me like it's a kid on the street. Uh, you, there's a, this... Uh, well, take from some films from South America, uh, Pijote from Brazil. That was a movie that I oh, didn't no. like at all. I mean, I hated it. I think you <laughs> felt the same way, Matt, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just awful. It, it's, it's that very nihilistic, everything's just horrible crap and life's miserable uh, kind of story. But I really believe, like, well, those are kids that really do live this life. And this, I felt, this is an, a kid that's acting a part. He's doing okay certainly better than a lot of other child actors, but never really sold me. Oh, he has lived this life and he's bringing it in. I I never really kind of got sold on that with Igor. Uh, With Olivia Gourmet's performance as Roger, I thought he was very good in many ways, but also I didn't feel threatened by him or I didn't feel Igor was threatened by him. Uh, maybe, Maybe we weren't supposed to, but it just struck me as, well, maybe he'd get slapped by his father, but 
I never got worried that his father was going to actually really physically harm him when he starts to actually go ahead and assist Asita when he goes out and starts rebelling against his father. I figured, well, his dad's going to kind of make up with him and make it work out. Uh, so I don't know if that was just a miscalculation because it did stream to strike or, or undercut the uh, tension that could have existed in the narrative. I, I think a lot of that's intentional, though. I, I think uh, Roger, his character is supposed to be kind of cowardly, right? And even though he's an imposing figure physically, and we do see him hitting his son, uh, at the end of the day, he's still someone who's trying to just cover up and avoid the situation. And, and that follows just what he does from day to day, exploiting these immigrants. Um, but it, does it kind of deprive his character of uh, being more of a threat? Yeah, I suppose it, I suppose it does. But I, I don't think it's a fault of the performance necessarily. Maybe it's a fault in the writing. Uh, but I, I guess I would disagree with yeah, I guess I would disagree with you on on uh, uh, Renier's performances. Igor, I, I I thought it was pretty convincing. I mean, I I thought it was a very mature screen performance for for someone who was doing this for the first time. Anything in particular that struck you about it that way? Like, is there a scene that came out of at you and say, "Oh, there, he really nailed it." Just the there may be two, three moments where we thought he was going to tell Asita the truth. Right. And I think it was telegraphed in his face very well. Um, so th- there were nuances there that I, I, I was, I picked up on, and I was impressed with, but I mean, is it mind blowing? No, but it's, uh, it's definitely a strong performance. Uh, pretty, pretty small cast, I guess, overall. I mean, the, um, it's probably not a lot, else to say about the the leads um any other thoughts on your end well i mean i will say i'd like and i don't think it's really in the performance it's probably more crafted in the editing uh is how igor develops his conscience right Mm -hmm. he's been malformed in his conscience by his father and then he start when this massive event happens and he's with amidou as he dies and amidou says care for my family you could see that that's the start of a, of a new awakening in his life. But I don't know how much of that is being really captured in the performance versus being pa- captured in the editing. And the way the narrative flows, you do see this development of the character's conscience to the point where he will tell Asita at the very end what happened. And he will follow her. He'll, he won't go back to a certain life. Um, so there's something where you could say, isn't that great? I mean, it's a really nice idea that he develops a conscience. He develops an understanding of right or wrong and an ability to care for people, not exploit people. Those are all wonderful things. But I just think that it's not captured so much in his performance as it is in the editing. And I think actually he's probably assisted quite well, uh, Renier is, by the actress that plays Asita um, herself. I think it's Asita Oredreogo or something to that effect. I'm sure I butchered yeah. her name there, uh, but I think it's Oedorago, uh is how you pronounce it. She, I thought, was actually probably the best performance of them all because she has probably the least amount of screen time and the least amount of room to develop her character, but she sells you on the character. She sells you on her fidelity to her husband uh, and her assumption that he's going to come back. Uh, so you, you, you kind of get more of a sense of her history 
than you do of either of the, the two main leads uh, in this particular film. Yeah, she's great as well. I mean, I I don't mean to overlook her at all. And um, I, what I felt was interesting just about the depiction of these immigrants in general is that the Dardan brothers, they don't seem interested in depicting them as victims necessarily, even though they are being victimized uh, by others. Uh, that That isn't the primary focus. I mean, he, they want to show, especially uh, Sita, her, her courage, you know, and her uh, persistence to survive and to make a life for her family. And I, I think of that the scene when she was being urinated on off the bridge, uh, she kind of, I mean, she's disgusted, uh, but just kind of brushes herself off and moves on. And, and she really accepts her suffering, I guess, uh, in, in a noble way. So I thought that was refreshing that it wasn't, uh, again, it wasn't this dour, you know, look at these poor huddled people. It's okay. These, these are strong willed people. They're, they're trying to make their way in the world. They're facing horrible obstacles and horrible circumstances and horrible living conditions. Uh, but especially for Asita, she accepts it and she is doing everything she can to better her situation. Uh, so I, I think that's admirable and it comes through in her performance quite well. Asita really, to me, is the moral compass of the film. She's the one that allows Igor to come to understand right and wrong. And so yeah. in a sense, you, you, to your point, Matt, that it's not looking at immigrants as a type, it's looking at them as people. I think it shows that, yes, she has been exploited, she has had these hardships, but that doesn't deprive her of her freedom, of her own will, of her own personhood, and that she can actually transcend them in a certain way. Not that she isn't experiencing these daily humiliations or uh, sufferings, but nonetheless, she has something within herself that is alive and is good. And Igor is able to perceive that, and his father does not perceive it, right? Roger does not see this reality to them. And he looks at them as just like a certain class that is destined to a certain kind of life. And therefore, why not exploit them? Because that's who they are. And what it is is basically Igor comes, I think, to see that, no, the the foreigner, the stranger, the immigrant uh, is a person and has a dignity and a value that is above and beyond their circumstances, which then affirms his him and the ability to actually say yes to respecting and to ultimately, in a I mean, purely platonic sense, right, loving uh, this woman and her family. There are quite a few, you know, powerful moments I, I felt in the film. And kind of going back to uh, Igor considering whether or not he's going to tell uh, Asita the truth, I think the the scene that kind of hit me the most was uh, when they're uh, on the street and she's trying to flag down a car to try to get her baby to the hospital. And there's a moment there where he has an opportunity to tell her and chooses not to because uh, she's facing just the panic of a sick child and he just doesn't want to add to that. Uh, I mean, it could be cowardice on his part too, but he just felt, I, I got the sense that he felt that this was not the right moment, right? So she was faced with a very serious situation uh, without knowing about the truth uh, regarding her husband. 
So that was a pretty powerful scene, uh, very simply pre- presented, but uh, that was uh, pretty well done, I thought. And there's quite a bit of symbolism I felt in the film too. I mean, and some disturbing sequences too. Of course, the the whole scene or the whole sequence where they're trying to um, bury Hamadou, so to speak, is is pretty disturbing. And then when we cut to the next day and we see that that area is now filled in with cement uh, and Igor is taking his wheelbarrow up over that area, we know what's hidden beneath there. Uh, so that, I think that's a symbolic device. Just you could say it's, you know, the oppression of the, the immigrants. So uh, being walked over by by those that are... Um, choosing to ignore their plight. So probably uh, a visual metaphor on the part of the Dardan brothers, uh, but disturbing for the audience as well. Uh, any any scenes stand out to you during the course of the film? To be honest, not really. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, be, I'll be perfectly blunt. This struck me as a perfectly good movie, but nothing exceptional to it. And mm-hmm. I, um, as I, sat, I watched it maybe a few days ago, and then sat down and thought about it. I go, what happened again? Um, <laughs> I, I remember the general structure. I remember the general thrust in the characters. But if I was to be, oh, well, this is how it started. This is where it progressed. Well, I mean, I, did, I really didn't have a sense of it. No one scene really struck me as being particularly moving or effective. So I wouldn't really credit it as particularly uh, strong in, in that regard. I do think that it was more the, the, the sensibilities within the characters themselves that resonated with me. So it wasn't really anything external that I took into my own viewing of the film. It was more getting at the conscience and at the, the movements within the character. Basically, this is a, a coming-of-age story. I mean, that's what we're watching here. Uh, so imagine those old high school comedies of people coming to age but done as a cinema verite. I think that's what you've got here. And it's um, it's a movie about a young man really coming to adulthood or coming to a realization of uh, himself as a moral actor in, in the world. So that's what resonated to me. Uh, as far as the other filmmaking of it goes, what I would say is I applaud the economy of it. It was a very small budget, as you can tell, watching it. But it doesn't feel like we got cheated out of stuff like, oh, they would have done this, but they... They couldn't, right? So one of the things is Amadou's accident, right? We don't see him fall. Well, I'm sure they just had no way to stage that with the money. And it's also probably not something the Dardenne brothers would have necessarily been interested in showing anyway. But you have the sound of it happening. I, you, I, with just hearing the sound, you understand what's happening. They've set up, he's reached over to turn off the um, radio, and you hear a fall from within the building. You come down, you see him. You know, it's very effective filmmaking. And I applaud them for that, that they have this ability to communicate the information you need and they don't over-communicate it. How many movies do we see where you can't not understand what's happening or you can't not understand the point they're trying to make? This one does allow you, the audience, room to think about it and it tells you in just very economical terms what you need to know uh, in order to make sense of these characters and I think that's really what they're interested in. I don't know that they're so much interested in trying to create great scenes. I think they're just trying to tell you uh, the story of these characters and how they progress. 
I have a feeling this is going to be a shorter episode. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, no, the, it's I, not the kind of movie, <laughs> in all honesty, that lends itself. I mean, this is the, 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 the drawback, I suppose, of these particular kinds of a cinema verite style is that most of the time there's not a lot to comment on the actual craft. Because you, there's no score for us to talk about. How do they use the score? How do they do that? The sound design is done specifically in such a way as to make it so it's not noticeable and not really anything worth commenting on. So the emphasis really, the movie lives or dies on its characters. And then you just can kind of explore those and then the themes that it naturally brings up, right? That's the, I guess, one of the things Cinema Verite does. It really makes it not so much about the craft. It makes it more about character and more about the actual um, uh, thematic purpose or intention of the directors and writers. So I think that's uh, one of the things about this movie that um, is is its strength, right? It, it puts its emphasis on, the, on what it wants to put its emphasis on. That just means then if you want to come in and critique it and analyze it, there's not as much, I think, meat out there as there is in something that's very stylized. So if you look at a Fellini film, where there's tons of ideas and there's tons of character and there's tons of cinematography and there's all sorts of symbolism. I don't know that, I mean, there might have been symbolism in what you were depicting or describing, Matt. I don't know that it was intentional. Is it one of the things where we, the audience, put it in later on uh, and they're just simply trying to communicate visually, this is what happened. Uh, are we reading a subtext into it that wasn't necessarily meant there? I, I can't say they didn't mean to have that symbolism, but I just wonder, is it's not as obvious and not as overloaded as what you find in a more stylized particular work of art. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to summarize it, I suppose. I mean, the, the goal of the style is to strip away the artifice, right? And it's kind of ironic in a way because it, by doing that, it does call attention to itself. Uh, because it is stylistically so different than what we typically think of in terms of um, uh, a movie. But it, it does, I think once we're absorbed in the film and those devices kind of become invisible, we are left with focusing on the themes and focusing on the characters. And I think that's what the, the Durdan brothers are ultimately most interested in. Uh, as we've said before, but yeah, I, I suppose it uh, lends itself to to um, a thinner discussion in terms of the stylistic choices. Um, well, let's try to get into some more of the themes if we can. Sure. Um, so, uh, one that really stood out to me in particular is just this idea that uh, that children can be more moral than their parents. And uh, gets back to you know the nature versus nurture debate, of course. Uh, so we we look at uh, Igor versus his father. They clearly have very different moral compasses. Uh, so it, you know it begs the question: you know, is morality something that's innate? Right? Is this uh, like Jung or Jung would say that you know we cannot create our own values? Uh, the values are, or ideas are things that exist independently of people. Um, you know, these ideas or values are, are disembodied from people. Uh, is that something that the film is trying to depict or trying to capture? Uh, you know, what is the film saying about morality just uh, in terms of a father-son relationship or, or the morality of a child um, as a child is growing up? 
I would say I think the Dardenne brothers are trying to say there is a morality and there is a right and wrong, uh, that it's something that maybe exists outside of us. So maybe it's not innate. I, I, I definitely get the sense that they wouldn't think of it as innate based on this film because mm-hmm. Igor doesn't have an innate understanding that of what's right or wrong, at least at the start of the film. He comes to encounter it in a couple key moments. I think that moment where he makes the promise, right, where he's told by... Amadou to promise that he's going to take care of them, he's confronted with a new experience that opens him up to a sort of moral reality that's above and beyond what his father has bring, give, been giving to him. So I would argue that it's saying that there is a moral order that does exist. There is right and wrong, and there are responsibilities we have to people as people, not as means to an end, not as somebody who I can use to advance my own uh, need, which is basically the ethics that are being purported by Roger, right? He is a utilitarian, essentially. Uh, So as long as these people can fulfill a certain need, I'll take care of them to the extent that I need to to fulfill that need. And there we have it, and I get what I want out of this. Um, I think that's the the general moral thought of this film, that no, there is something greater than utility to the human person. And Maybe this is something that the Dardans have talked about in some interviews is the idea of, of foreigners, and maybe this is why they have such an emphasis on immigrants in their work, is that foreigners teach us about our humanity because you don't have a shared language necessarily. You don't have a shared experience, uh, culture. And so since you don't have those built-in things around you, you only thing you can really start to connect with them on is the more basically human, and you learn a little bit more of what it means to be human. Uh, in that encounter. And so that's, that might be the part of the, the thought of why they had this be about immigrants, because you don't have to have it be immigrants that he was exploiting. Uh, but it works very well, I think, in this film, trying to flesh that out, that, re- that reality. I was wondering, actually, a little bit about the, the male versus female influence over Igor. So even though Asita is not his mom, and the, uh, the maternal figure is seen in passing when they're at uh, their home, uh, in a sense, Isida takes on sort of a maternal instinct. And so I was wondering, to what extent are we really looking at these three characters as a family unit? And you have the boy, uh, the son, with a father, a mother figure, and it's about what does a father offer, what does a mother offer, obviously a crooked father in this case, uh, and then what does a, a mother's role, and how does the maternal instinct impact a child and develop them. I don't know. Did you pick up on any thoughts on that? Uh, I guess that didn't really occur to me watching the film. I mean, I could see how you could um, infer that, but I, I never felt like Asita acted, you know, motherly toward Igor and, and in any, you know, greatly measurable way. If anything, she seemed more annoyed by him and more curious as to why uh, he was so interested in her well-being. I mean, there is that scene where where he does outright hug her, and she seems quite confused. You know, is this uh, a child looking to to hug a maternal figure because he doesn't have one, or is he just trying to comfort her because he knows the truth of her situation, even though she does not? Uh, you know, his confusion, his moral confusion, and and just the the pangs of his conscience. Uh, are getting to him at that point. Uh, so I, I guess 
you know, the, the lack of, uh, of a strong uh, maternal presence in Igor's life, I, I, I suppose, is a detriment to his, his situation. Uh, and, and his father certainly is, is no one to look up to. So it, it's surprising to see that he has the moral compass that he has in this film, even though he starts out as a petty thief. Uh, there's clearly an arc to uh, to his character, and, and by the end of the film, uh, he's far more mature than uh, pretty much anybody else uh, we're seeing in the film. So, uh, just back to your question, I, I guess I didn't really pick up on on Asita as as kind of a uh, an analog for his mother. Right, I, you're right. I mean, she doesn't necessarily have a specific moment where she cares for him. He breaks a leg and she helps mend it or something. There's, there's not a scene quite like that. Uh, I guess more of something about her, maybe it's my reading into this incorrectly. That's entirely possible, but that she offers him a sort of glimpse, a glimpse into, uh, femininity, I guess. And as a older woman that brings about a certain kind of maternal relationship that he maybe desires. And, Something about that final scene where the two of them are finally away and he tells her, you get the sense that she is making some kind of judgment of him. I mean, you don't know exactly because it's all, it's played out with, with no dialogue on her part. Some judgment of him and starts to walk away and he walks after her. And I get the sense that there is a sense of a, a bond has been created here Um uh, and maybe it's not the right, and, and maybe it's not right to put it in that maternal uh, sense. But that's at least what it, what came to me as I saw it the first time. Yeah, it's an interesting take. Um, I, I mean, let, let's talk about the ending. You know, that's it's clearly open to interpretation. We kind of had this long, drawn out characters walking into the sunset, so to speak, kind of shot, and it is very underplayed understated we don't really know what Asita is thinking but it's an interesting dynamic because it's such a simple scene he just comes right out and says it in very plain terms she has you could say a confused expression certainly an expression of pain and it's not a, a lash out in anger it's not she's running away from him uh, they walk off together, and, and as you said, that that implies some kind of a bond. But what kind of a bond is there? Well, I almost took it as she realizes that he has been looking after her uh, in place of her husband. Uh, not so much that uh, they would have a husband-wife relationship, but uh, he has been trying to fulfill that role in terms of providing for her and her child uh, as much as a young teenager could possibly do so. Uh, So she recognizes that he has been dealing with his own struggles uh, and is finally doing the right thing. Uh, So it's hard for her to really lash out in anger at that point. If anything, she sees him as possibly the one person that's truly been kind to her throughout her whole experience uh in in belgium so far so she's clinging on to kind of that one beacon that she may have despite the fact that uh, he had been openly lying to her for uh pretty much as long as 
they've known each other. So it, it's an interesting ending, and again, very understated, very underplayed. But I think there's a lot to to unpack there. I agree. I think it's well, it's purposely that way. I think its intention is to be a bit of a Rorschach. What do yeah. I see in it? And then that somehow is revealing a little bit of myself as I'm watching it. Uh, I would say I I saw it a bit differently. I, I think everything you said is is going to hold pretty pretty true. Um, I was wondering if that's actually the scene where it's about him finally he now actually really will start making good on his promise because yes he had been coming around checking in on things but hesitantly not really giving in it's not until he finally tells Asita this is what's happened your husband will not be coming back he has died uh that he finally is going to now be in a position where he can actually look after them and so I saw this as actually being the start of him actually being able to carry out the promise he is he is now by having admitted it and then following after her you know coming after her uh or coming with her as they leave uh is now really committed to i'm going to live out the promise that i made that's what i took it to mean that this is where the promise is fulfilled yeah that's an interesting take i mean that makes sense so this is yeah as you said the the start of the real story is the end of this film so um yeah, I think that's a good reading as well. I mean, it just it strikes me as that's their intention, that the, the film is designed, the script is designed in such a way as there's clearly a story that has been going on before, by the time we start in, right? And yeah. so, uh, like, Amadou, just the fact that he's a gambler, but uh, we don't really know much about that, but you know, we deduce it from little bits of information that come around. So, in all honesty, I mean, for all we know, Amadou would have been killed and thrown out a window from gambling debts, right? So they could have been in this exact same situation even without the accident while working. Uh, you have this obviously built-in history with Igor and Roger so that you understand, yeah, there's Igor's been around. He's, he's young, he's already smoking, able to drive. So he's obviously learned things and had kind of a rough life uh, under his father's tutelage before this. Uh, and then you get the sense of, hey, this is going to continue on. And that's not an easy trick to pull off in telling a film. How do you get, how do you end when life keeps going on, right? Especially if you're trying to be a slice of life like this movie is. How do you effectively accomplish that? And that's, I think, to the Darden brothers' credit, that they were able to create a story that really does feel authentically a, a chapter of a life. It's not the whole life. There's a story that existed before that could have also been a movie in of itself, there's going to be a story that follows that could be a movie in of itself and maybe just as interesting or important as what we've seen. We've only seen a glimpse of it. And so we don't, as the audience, really know these characters or their their story in full. We just know a snippet of it, uh, which as a man who likes characters to be front and center in a movie, I, I love all the bells and whistles around them too. But I mean, honestly, if you don't have good characters, what's it for? Uh, I, I appreciated that a lot. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Criterion's uh, release here. Uh, so I did watch this on on Filmstruck. Same I here. don't have the the disc, yeah, but it does have some of the extras on Filmstruck. So there's a conversation between uh, film critic Scott Foundus and the filmmakers. Uh, I did watch some of that, and pretty straightforward piece. Uh, it does kind of give some insight into where their careers were at when, when this film was made and how this was really a breakthrough for them. Uh, and we should mention that the Dardans have won 
uh, two Palm Doors, which is a pretty small club, uh, and certainly the only Belgian directors that have done something like that. Um, and I think the the disc also has a new interview with the uh, the two leads. So uh, a fairly minimal disc in terms of extras, but uh, no commentary or anything like that. But there's some decent material that will be found there. And it's got a really nice cover, I think. Uh, but this is one of several releases in, in the Criterion Collection uh, by the Dardans. So they seem to be favored by the collection. Yes, they have they have a place in the Criterion Collection's heart. I thought the interview with the brothers was pretty good. Nothing profound or really interesting um, as far as a documentary goes, but it's just a good conversation. It was interesting to hear them. Particularly, I, I like just hearing how they came to this style of filmmaking, that it really felt like they got back into their documentary days, right? They actually, as their first effort into narrative filmmaking, was a traditional cinematic experience and they found it themselves so distant and so bogged down in the technicalities of it that it didn't feel like something they could really do or care about and so that ultimately stripping away all those things got them back to what they loved about filmmaking and also just how even though this is a fiction it's still rooted in some of their experiences doing all those documentaries uh, that they met people. And so that becomes the impetus for creating these characters, which is probably why it feels so grounded and why it feels uh, like that these movies uh, do, even though I'm not necessarily convinced entirely of the acting, nonetheless, the the world seems to be a real world uh, that's rooted in Belgian life. Yeah, it was filmed in their hometown, so I'm sure I'm sure it's uh, an area they're intimately familiar with, and probably had very specific locations in mind for shooting. And I think it shows in the film. I mean, there's there's a real eye for the industrial landscape and and depicting it in a way that uh, uh, not only is you know conveys realism, but I mean, there's uh, definitely a, a cinematic eye in the film beyond that, you know, kind of transcends its, uh, its documentary roots. So it's, uh, it's neat to see two brothers, uh, directing. It's, I always find that interesting, just like the Coen brothers, that there are directors out there that can have the same sensibilities to the point where they can unify and, and work on a project together, which is, uh, easier said than done, I think. Yeah. It'd be, I imagine it's a hard thing to pull off. Uh, making a movie is hard to do no matter what, but to have two minds trying to work together to ha- create something coherent must be a, a real, real tricky business. Even just writing the script, I could see how that would be really tricky and then trying to actually execute it. Um, there's a reason why you usually have one person that sits at the top of a company or a major institution because it's a little easier to have one person saying, here's the vision, and I'm going to divvy up this way. So to have two people sharing that vision... Uh, it, it, obviously there's other directing pairs that do exist but uh, not too often well I think we can wrap up our conversation um, so uh, final thoughts on La Promesse do you think it's uh, something worthy of the Criterion Collection that's a good question um, I can see 
those who are big fans of the Dardan brothers wanting it in there are arguing for its inclusion because it was really their first film as they make films, right? And in, in their in their style. And it was their breakthrough uh, back when it came out in 1996. That being said, I don't know how much of a major impact it has had. It certainly did provide uh, them room to breathe and then do other work. But on its own merits, I don't think it deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. So I would say no, it does not belong in the collection. Well, it's certainly an important film uh, for the Dardan brothers, as you said. And I think they're important filmmakers. I, I think they're, they're seen as kind of the the voice of the working class or the voice of, of immigrants in Europe, which is, uh, at least in the world of, of cinema currently, which is definitely still a very hot topic uh, in Europe in particular. So I, I think it's worthwhile. I, I think it's worthy of, of inclusion. I mean, is it a great film? No, uh, but it's very strong, and I think there's a lot to, to admire and, and a lot to enjoy here. Uh the the 90 minutes went by pretty fast for me so i thought it was pretty strong overall well that'll conclude our discussion for tonight uh the next episode will be covering david fincher's the curious case of benjamin button thanks for listening and good night lost my train of thought we'll edit it out <laughs> <laughs>